Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Special welcome to any of you who are new with us or just visiting for the first time. Uh, we're really glad that you're here with us, especially if you're online. Thanks for worshiping online with us this morning. We're always glad to have you as part of the worship today as well. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City. And if you are new with us, we are kind of ending a mini-series that we've been doing in our larger series about wisdom in general. So we have gone through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and um, Job, and now we are wrapping up our series in Song of Songs. And we want to help people follow Jesus in all areas of their life. And that includes sometimes talking about more difficult subjects or subjects that don't always get talked about from uh, a church perspective. So in Song of Songs, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's a Hebrew book of love poetry. And so we have been talking about love and relationships and sex. So we are going to dive into that today. It's going to be our last one in Song of Songs. Uh, but before we do that, I would love to just pray for us. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you um, for your wisdom. We thank you that as we learned in Proverbs, that wisdom starts with fear of you and awe of you. So Lord, this morning as we worship you, we ask that you would give us an awe and a reverence for you and for your word and what you've done uh, in this world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so two weeks ago, I talked a little bit about a warning that gets repeated in the book of Song of Songs. So the warning goes something like this. It says, don't awaken love before it's time. So kind of this idea of don't dive into love and intimacy, and especially physical intimacy, until it is the proper time to do so. And in Song of Songs, we've also talked a little bit about how love is like fire. That's an analogy that gets used in the book. And fire is a great thing, right? It's bonfire season. Everybody loves to sit outside, to be warmed by the fire. We need fire to do a lot of things. But it can also be really dangerous if it's not used in the proper context. And so love and intimacy is similar. It's this great, wonderful thing when used properly, but when not used properly, it can be dangerous. There can be consequences, and people can get really hurt. And so this week, we're going to talk about what to do when that happens. What do you do? How do you move forward after you've been hurt by love awakened before it's time? And there are kind of two aspects of this. So it's kind of two different things I'm going to be talking about throughout the sermon. And the first aspect is like sexual sin. So broken sexuality, things that maybe you are um, doing or choices you've made in your life that would kind of fall under that category of ways that love isn't supposed to be used, ways that sex isn't supposed to be used. And I say that, but really, this category includes all of us because our, broken, our sexuality is broken in every aspect of the world and in every aspect of us. Because when, this, when sin entered the world, when the fall happened, everything was broken, and that includes our sexuality. And if you're thinking, yeah, but like I don't watch porn or I've never you know, done anything that would fall into that category... I'm just going to quote Jesus here. In Matthew 5, 27, he says, anyone who looks at someone lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And so Jesus raises the standards pretty high, and he's trying to make the point that all of us have broken sexuality. And so when I talk about this category of broken sexuality, I'm really talking to all of us. 
And the second aspect is when you've had sexual sin that's been done to you. So I'm talking here about sexual violence, sexual abuse, sexual assault. And this is very different from that first category. So I want to make the distinction really clear that the first category of having broken sexuality and choosing to partake in sexual sin is something that is different than when sexual sin is done to you, when you're not in control of it. When some, that's something awful. That's not the same thing. And unfortunately, even though you had no control of what happened to you, there are still consequences that you have to deal with. Sexual assault and sexual abuse affects us on a very deep personal level. As we've been talking about, sexuality is something that's not just physical, but it is emotional and it is spiritual. And so it affects us on a very personal level and can be difficult to heal from. And I say us because sexual, healing from sexual assault or sexual sin is part of my story as well. So if you are feeling like, yeah, I fall in this category of the idea of love being awakened before its time with something that I didn't choose, something that was done to me, I just want to say from the outset of this, from one survivor of sexual assault to another, I am really sorry that that happened to you. It is not your fault. It is sin. It is wrong. And not only me, but God is also grieved by what happened to you. And I understand this is a sensitive topic. It's an aspect of broken sexuality that doesn't always get talked about in the church for probably a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is just that it's hard to talk about. And so as hard as it is, we think it's really important. And we think it's something that needs to be talked about in the church because it does affect a lot of people. According to the CDC, sexual violence, which they define as sexual activity where consent is not obtained or freely given, has been experienced by one in three women and one in four men. And that's actually probably even like underestimating it because a lot of people don't report what happened to them. So the numbers are actually probably even higher than that. Which means that some of you have experienced this firsthand. And if you haven't, you likely know somebody who has. Rachel Den Hollander, who is, you might recognize her name, she was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of the USA Gymnastics of sexual assault and abuse. She's also a Christian, and she's a really great advocate for people who have been affected by sexual violence. And she has said in her work that churches are often the least safe place for victims. And we've seen that, right? We've seen cover-ups. We've seen leaders that we admired or looked up to fall from grace. And honestly, it really makes me sick when I think about the fact that churches are often the least safe place for people who have been abused. Because the church should be the safest place. It should be the place with the most hope and with the most healing for people who have been affected by this. Because we have Jesus, and we have what he has done for all of us and the ways that that impacts us. And we're actually going to see this theme of hope and healing for relationships, love, and sex in Song of Songs. Especially when we trace the theme back from the beginning of Genesis, kind of all the way through Song of Songs, and then we'll look at how Jesus affects this as well. But we need to go back to the beginning of the story to do that. So let's go to Genesis. We've been spending a lot of time there in this little mini-series um, and in Genesis, we've talked about how men and women, they were created to live together in harmony, 
right? They were created to co-work for God, to live in total intimacy, to be naked and completely unashamed. And then sin comes in. They choose to worship something other than God, and it affects everything. The effects just sweep through both them and their relationships, but also the earth. And one of the things that the sin affects uh, is the relationship between Adam and Eve, and, and therefore the relationships between men and women. We see this in Genesis 3.16. It says, your desire, this is talking to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So instead of working together and ruling the earth together, they desire to rule over one another. They're always trying to one-up one another. They're trying to control the other. It's kind of like they're always butting heads, right? Their desires are contrary to one another, and they're trying to rule over one another. It's this constant cycle. And we see that in relationships throughout Scripture, right? If you were to continue reading through this, you can kind of see these dynamics come up. But we don't actually see them in Song of Songs. In Song of Songs, we actually see sort of this, like, redone version of what Adam and Eve could have been if they didn't have this relationship, these problems in their relationship. So we see this garden imagery, right? Joel has talked about this before, but I'm going to read this again so you can kind of hear and see, like, oh yeah, this kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve and of the garden. So Song of Songs chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. So you see, it sounds like the garden, right? It sounds like Adam and Eve. And as you move through it, you actually see as well that there's kind of a um, reversal of that curse of being contrary to one another and ruling over In Song of Songs 7, verse 10, it says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. So their desire, instead of being contrary to one another, now it's for the other person. It's for their best interests. It's for their flourishing. It's beautiful. And it feels like a return to the way that things were supposed to be. Right? No more curse. They're working together in harmony. It's like we get a glimpse of what it could have been if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. We see the potential. And at the same time, the book Song of Songs isn't, everything outside of their relationship isn't always rosy. The book still shows us the way that the world that we live in is broken. As Joel talked about last week, uh, there's kind of this like aspect, or it almost feels a little bit like a character in and of itself. The idea of the city, right? The city that they live in, it's dangerous. When they go out, it's not a place where their intimacy can flourish. It's actually a place where it kind of hinders it. And in Song of Songs 5-7, there's an example of this. The woman is out looking for her beloved, uh, and this is what happens. It says, The watchmen found me and they made their, as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. So what exactly happens there? Uh, scholars are not entirely sure. It could have been an in, just an instance of violence where they're beating her and they just kind of took her jacket. Or some people think it actually could be an instance of sexual violence, that them taking her cloak was actually more like her, them taking her clothing. 
So while on one hand, we see that Song of Songs, between the man and the woman, there's this beautiful intimacy, and it shows us hope for restored relationships and what things could be like. On the other hand, it shows us that we still live in a broken world. It shows us that there are still things that are going to cause barriers to intimacy and cause real hurt to other people. So what do we do with this, right? What do we do in the meantime? We live in this already not yet type of a situation, as we've talked about before, that there's hope and there's a promise of something coming and restoring and being healed, and yet we still deal with the brokenness in our everyday lives. So I'm going to present three things as, as we think about how do we deal with this in-between? How do we move forward in healing from sexual sin or sexual assault or abuse? And these three things are not an exhaustive list by any means. We could talk about this topic for a lot longer than how long I'm going to be up here. It's just a starting point. It's a way to start thinking about how we could move forward in healing. So the first thing, the first point I'm going to talk about is don't hide. If you've experienced these things, don't hide them. Don't um, hold them in and not be willing to talk about them with other people. When we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, the first thing that they did after they sinned, after they chose to worship something other than God, was that they hid. Genesis 3, 7 through 10 says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves uh, and made coverings for themselves. So they realized that they were naked, and they hide themselves from one another by sewing these fig leaves together which is kind of strange when you think about it, because they've been naked around each other this whole time. So it's not like, oh, you know, I don't want you to see this. It's already been seen, right? This is, so something has come into their relationship that they feel a need to cover themselves. And then God shows up, and then they really hide. So verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Again, they've been naked in front of God this whole time, and they've never cared before. So what is it that's different? What is it that's come into their relationships that's made them feel like they need to hide from each other and from God? And I think that thing is shame. We often think of shame as just feeling bad about doing something wrong, but the thing that I've heard that's more helpful in understanding it is that guilt is feeling bad about doing something wrong, but shame is feeling like you are bad because of something that, was, that you did wrong or that was done to you. Shame is something that goes deeper than guilt. It's something that seeps into our personhood and affects how we think about ourselves and how we think about everyone around us. And as a result of that, we often want to hide, right? Sometimes we hide from it. Other times we hide from other people. Uh, But either way, our instinct is to push it down and to not deal with it. And the ironic thing is that that actually makes it worse. Uh, Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, says, here's the bottom line with shame. The less you talk about it, the more you've got it. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. So by keeping quiet, your shame will actually grow exponentially, is what she says. And I think the way that works is it feels a little bit like a snowball effect. When you start to hide something, 
you will continue to move down that path, right? You're hiding it, and then now being around others is harder because you're trying to hide this thing from them. So then you maybe pull away from other people, and then now you feel worse about yourself because you're not seeing anybody and you feel alone, and then it just spirals. It just continues like a snowball rolling down a hill. It gets bigger and bigger in your life. And for those of you who have sexual sin or brokenness, um, that, and you're afraid to talk about it with other people or you just feel ashamed of it, I just want to encourage you, like I said in the beginning, we're all sinners. We all know that we're broken, and we all know that we need Jesus. That's why we're here. So when you're hiding this or when you're not willing to talk about it because you're ashamed of it, you're actually hiding something that we already know, right? We already know that you're a sinner. And so it really shouldn't surprise us when other people tell us about their own sin, and if anything, you're doing in, in bringing up your own sin and confessing it, you're actually doing something that we all should be doing all the time. I don't think we're that great at confessing and repenting. It's not something that the world really likes right now, so it's not something we talk about as much. But I think that when you lead in that way, you're actually just doing something we all should do. So I hope that encourages you that you can open up to other people because we all are dealing with our own things. They might look different from what you're dealing with, but it's not, any, it's not so different that we can't relate to that feeling of shame or that need to talk about what's going on. And then for you, those of you who have been sinned against, I know that it's really hard to talk about what happened to you. And I know that it can be even harder if you've tried to share it with somebody before and they haven't believed you or they've dismissed you in some way. So I understand that by saying, don't hide, I'm actually asking a really big thing of you. That's not lost on me. But honestly, when you continue to hide it, it gives it more power. It's going to seep into all aspects of your life. And I hate that that's true. I wish that it wasn't, but it is. Brene Brown goes on in her research about shame to say, shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. Shame depends on me buying into the belief that I'm alone. So talking to other people actually helps break the shame that we feel. It changes things for us. It helps us to take that step towards moving towards healing and grace. And I'm not saying you need to tell everybody. In fact, I would caution you against that. That's not probably the greatest idea. But I do think it's important to tell somebody, somebody who's safe, somebody that you trust, and that could be somebody here. It could be me. I'm willing to be that person. Maybe it's your community group leader. Maybe it's your close friend. But we have people here who are willing to do that, who are willing to listen to you, who will believe you, who are here for you to help you take whatever steps you need to, to help move forward in this, whether that's finding somewhere safe to stay, whether that's helping you find a therapist or someone to talk through these things with. I've even helped women fill out restraining orders before. We are here to want to help you take those steps towards healing and towards grace. And even if it's not somebody here, I just encourage you to talk to someone because shame will continue to snowball if you let it. And it needs something to come in from the outside to change that effect, to change that snowball from continuing down the hill. And talking about it with someone is a huge step, but ultimately that's not going to stop it entirely. Ultimately, we need Jesus to come in and to change our shame. And he does. In the case of Adam and Eve, yes, they uh, sinned and they screwed up, and they tried to hide it from God, but God is still gracious to them. 
There's a part in this story that I think often gets skipped over, and it's verse 21. This is after Adam and Eve have hid and they've talked with God. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So previously, Adam and Eve had made these fig leaf uh, clothing, which honestly sounds like a challenge from something like Project Runway, where you're you're given weird materials and say, here, make something to wear. And I'm guessing the fig leaves probably wouldn't last that long. But God comes in, and he makes them lasting clothes, clothes out of animal skin. So I don't know if it was leather or wool or whatever it was, but I'm going to guess it was a lot more lasting than fig leaves. He shows them grace and covers their shame. And for us, we experience the same thing with Jesus. No matter why we're experiencing shame, whether it's because of sin that we've done or sin that's been done to us, Jesus covers our shame. He takes on the shame from any and all sin that people have done when he dies on the cross, and then he defeats it when he rises again. And to die the way that Jesus died on the cross, crucified, was actually the most shameful thing, the most shameful way he could have died in his time. So Jesus lived in what people call a shame and honor culture, where honor and shame are kind of like, honor is the currency, right? So if you do something honorable, you're given more social capital or more currency, basically. But if you do something shameful, then all of that's taken away. And Jesus does the most shameful thing when he dies on the cross. It's actually a punishment that they saw fit only for people who were like less than human. So it was people who were criminals, people who everybody looked down on. It was even so bad that Roman citizens were exempt from being crucified. Even if they were the worst criminal in the whole society, because they were Roman, the Romans didn't want anybody who had the Roman citizen name to be crucified because they thought if someone is crucified who is Roman, it's going to bring so much shame upon the rest of us that we just don't even want them to do that. But with Jesus, it works the opposite way. He takes on all of our shame when he dies, and he gives us grace and freedom. So instead of shame spreading to other people, he actually spreads grace. And in the same way that Adam, or that Adam and Eve are clothed by the clothes that God gives them, and it's a more lasting thing than what they created on their own, the grace that we are given in Jesus is even more lasting, right? It's like an everlasting piece of clothing that no matter what happens to it, it still covers us. We're still covered in God's grace. So you don't need to hide the shame that you experience. You can share confidently with other people knowing that we are covered by Jesus and his grace, and we no longer have any reason to be ashamed. All right, I'm going to move on to the second thing that I think is important for all of us as we think about healing and grace from love awakened before it's time. And that second one is to not let what you've experienced to define you. And I want to clarify what I mean by this a little bit, because I think sometimes as Christians, we just kind of throw out like, oh, but whatever thing you're struggling with, that's not your identity, Jesus is. And we feel like, yeah, you shouldn't even think about that other thing. It shouldn't bother you. It shouldn't even be like, you should just erase it. Just forget it, because all you need is Jesus. And it's true. All you need is Jesus, right? That's Very true. It's the most important thing about your identity. But those other things in your life are still a part of your identity. They don't disappear. They still matter. 
and it's always going to be a part of your story. And that's okay, because it doesn't get to be the defining part of your story. I think our culture likes to make a really big deal out about, about sex and identity and how that plays together. But we're, when we believe in Jesus, when we have our identity founded in him, that's the most important thing, and these other things don't get to steal the show. And I know that this can be challenging, right? Because as we've been talking about, sex is something that affects us on a deep level. And I know that many victims of sexual assault and abuse really struggle with uh, how they view themselves afterwards. They may see themselves as damaged or not worth anything because of what happened. They might feel guilt or shame or self-blame, loss of confidence, and so many other things. And I think a lot of people um, who have been caught up in sexual sin, if it's something that's been chronic for them, they also feel like they're not worthy of accepting God's grace. Because there can be such a stigma around sexual sin in the church, I think they can also feel like, yeah, I don't think I'm worthy either. And a lot of people, when you find yourselves in this place, the answer that's given is, well, you just need to work on your self-esteem, right? You just need some, like, self-affirmations. If you're a woman and you go on Instagram, oh, my gosh, there's so many people who are like, here's your affirmations for today. Here are the things to feel good about yourself. And the honest truth is those things just don't really help. They might help in the short term, but they're not going to make a difference. It's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a giant wound. Because again, just like uh, as we talked about with shame, when it comes to identity, we need someone to come in from the outside to change things for us. You're going to see a pattern here, right? Jesus needs to come in from the outside to change this in our lives. Because in the same way that Jesus covers our shame, he also gives us a new identity, when we're united through faith with Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us and whatever we've done or what's been done to us, but he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness, his blamelessness, his faithfulness, his dignity, his wholeness. Because when we're united to Jesus, we get all of those benefits too. It's sort of like uh, when you get married and how credit scores work. So when I was in high school, I had a teacher who was always lecturing us on checking someone's credit before we dated them or before we married them. And I was like, man, we're in high school. Like, no one's thinking about this. Like, no one even has credit cards probably, right? Like, it's just something that seems so far off. But he was always lecturing us because he was like, if you marry someone with bad credit, your credit is going to be bad too, and then vice versa, if you marry someone with even better credit than you, your credit score goes up. And with Jesus, we have like the best credit possible. When we are married to Jesus or united to him through belief in, in him, we get all of the benefits that he has. So we image Christ. And our dignity and our worth comes from who we are imaging it's something that's hard to kind of like internalize and something that can be difficult to practice. And I was going to share just a story of a way that God helped make sense of this in my brain. It's a weird image that I had in a dream. And if you're anything like me, dreams are like a strange combination of things from your day plus like things you're stressed about or things you're processing. And so they make very little sense or they have very strange logic. Uh, but for whatever reason, this dream was really helpful for me, and so I thought I would share it. So when I was in the dream, it was like I had a, I looked down and I had this masking tape ball stuck to me. 
So like, imagine a rubber band ball, but it's made out of masking tape, and somehow the sticky part is on the outside. Like I said, dream logic, just go with it. So I'm, I'm in this dream, and I, I see this thing is stuck to me. And so I take it off, and I try to throw it in the garbage. And then I turned around, and it was stuck to me again. And it was like this thing that I couldn't get rid of. It was almost like a felt in the dream, like almost like a scarlet letter of, or something. And so in the dream, I continued to try to get rid of it in various ways. I hide it. I put it through a paper shredder, which somehow works, even though it's a ball and it's tape. But again, dream logic. So I'm doing all of these things, and everything I'm trying, nothing is working. It's still stuck to me. And then in the dream, I looked up, and I saw a wooden cross on the wall, very similar to the one in here. And when I looked up, the ball was on the cross, put through kind of like a chain and hanging from it. And after that, the tape ball was not stuck to me anymore. No matter what I did, it stayed on the cross. And when I woke up, I just had this realization of, yeah, I'm trying to do all of these things to make myself feel better or to have my own identity and to change the way I feel. But the only person who can do that is Jesus. And when I look to the cross, when I look to Jesus and what he's done for me, that's when I get a new identity. That's when things change. That's when I'm defined by him and not by what's been done to me or what I've done. Because Jesus not only covers our shame, but he does so much more than that. He gives us this new identity. He gives us dignity. And it's something that we can hold on to. No matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've done, Jesus is the one who gets to define you. And that kind of leads into our last point, which is just to accept God's grace and healing. And this is by no means, like I said, an exhaustive list of anything. If you're struggling with any of this, I, again, encourage you, please talk to someone. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to me or Joel, whoever you feel safe with, because this is going to be a process, right? One sermon is not going to change everything for you. But I wanted to share some of these truths just because I think it's going to help you and help all of us take steps towards healing and grace. And if you're someone who struggles with sexual sin, I want to talk to you for a second, especially if this is something that's like been a chronic thing in your life. Part of the process of moving towards grace and healing is going to be repentance. I know this is not a popular idea. We talk a lot about how in our culture right now, the idea of telling someone they're doing something wrong or that they need to repent is very taboo. It's not something that culture says is a good thing to do. But for us, it's a necessary part of the process of understanding and receiving God's grace. So if you are in this place, if you're struggling, I encourage you to take the time to really name what's going on, to think back into your heart and in your life about why this is a chronic thing for you, why you're struggling with this, figure out those deeper reasons, and then feel the gravity of your sin. But then I'm encouraging you, don't stay there, but confess and turn to God. Ask and receive his forgiveness. And I know as I say this, there are kind of people on opposite ends of the spectrum. For some of you, you're like, yeah, I beat myself up daily about this, right? I feel terrible. I'm constantly feeling like I am confessing and repenting. And that's not what I mean. I am not asking for you to stay in a place where you feel bad about yourself or where you're constantly beating yourself up over what you're doing. 
And on the other hand, I know the other side of the spectrum is people who are like, yeah, I'm okay with confession, but I'd like to just like confess and move on, right? That's the, moving on is the fun part, that's the better part. So I'm just gonna work through this process really quickly and, and jump over here. And we have to fight those tendencies and those temptations and try to stay in the middle where we are truly confessing, truly feeling the weight of our sin, and yet at the same time accepting God's grace and his forgiveness. We need to acknowledge it and we need to repent and confess but we don't need to stay there forever. And sometimes, even after you repent, you might not feel like you deserve God's grace. And I know for, for those of you who are sinned against, who maybe have experienced abuse or assault, it can be really hard to feel like you deserve God's healing because of the distorted self-image you have, because of the things that you've internalized about feeling worthless. The shame and the struggle that we have uh, to see ourselves the way God does makes it really difficult to accept God's grace and healing. And although those feelings are true, right, I acknowledge that you might feel that way, and I'm not saying that it's, um, you, you know, just need to get rid of those feelings. I want you to acknowledge that you feel this way and that that's okay. Because the best thing about grace is that it comes to us when we're at our lowest. It comes to us when we're weak. Jesus said that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. He came for those who acknowledge their weakness, who know that they need Jesus and that they need his healing and his grace. There's a book that I have read many times and I've gone through it with other women who, have, who are working through sexual assault and abuse in their past. Uh, it's called Rid of My Disgrace and it's a, it's a book specifically for victims of sexual assault and it's a really beautiful, well-done book. And there's a quote in there about grace that always stands out to everybody who reads it. And it applies to both people who, who have experienced sexual sin, but also maybe for those who are um, like partaking in it or participating in it. And so I'm just going to read the quote um, because I think it's a really helpful reminder of the way that grace comes to us, um, not because we are doing something because we have deserved it, but because that's how God works. He comes to us when we need him most. It says... Undeserved acceptance is a great way of explaining grace. Grace comes to you when you are weak, not strong. Grace floods you when your disgust for your weakness and your lack of composure has become intolerable to you. Grace is already there when the long-for progress does not yet appear, when the old compulsions reemerge, when despair destroys joy and courage. Grace is the wave of light that breaks into the darkness. And you hear God say, because of what my son did, you are accepted. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. You belong to me. Do not try to do anything right now. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform for anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Through Jesus, we are accepted. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, we have been given grace and healing in Jesus Christ. And like I said, I'm not going to say it's going to come instantly. It probably won't. Healing from love awakened before its time is really difficult. That's why the Song of Songs gives you that warning, because it hurts. It's a, it has consequences that are deep and lasting and takes a while to, to work through. There's been a lot of research done on trauma and how uh, that rewrites our brain and our body and how it stays with us. 
It's also research done on how habits, like chronic sin, can rewire our brains. And while it's helpful to understand those things when we're in the process, to know that the reasons we're reacting the way that we are are sometimes part of our brain chemistry, but it also can feel really discouraging at times. It can feel like even our own body is working against us in our process of moving towards healing. But we have certainty of healing because of Jesus. His resurrection promises us new life and that one day we will be completely healed. It's like we have an appointment with some kind of like specialist who can heal everything, right? And we have that appointment. We know it's secure. We know that one day we are going to be completely restored along with our relationships, along with everyone around us, uh, and around, along with the earth. And Ephesians says that that same spirit, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and made that possible, made this new life possible, is also at work in each one of us. So that means that the Spirit of God, the one that raised Jesus, is also at work in us daily in our process of moving towards grace and healing. We're not alone in this process. We have the Holy Spirit with us, uh, and you have this community that is here with you as well. So you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide your shame, and you don't have to let what has happened to you or what you've done define you uh, in a core way. You can accept grace and healing. And we're actually going to practice that in kind of a tangible way this morning when we take communion. So we're going to get ready to move into a time of worship through song and taking communion. And I think communion is, is great because it's a tangible thing we can do to remind ourselves of the, the death that Jesus died to take all of our shame and also the, the idea that his body will, was broken but that it will be raised, it is raised, and our bodies will be raised with him as well. So as we take communion this morning, I just encourage you to reflect on that uh, and then to join in worship and singing with us. So I'm going to pray for us and then we will move into that time. Father, we thank you and praise you that you do provide grace, that you cover our shame, that you give healing, and that it comes to us when we uh, are at our weakest. So Lord, I just pray for everybody in this room, wherever they're at, whatever their experience is, that they would be able to uh, see you more clearly, that they would be able to feel your presence, to feel your grace, and that you would give them the courage to take whatever next step they might need to take, whether that's talking to someone about what's going on um, or whatever that is. Lord, I just pray that you would be working in their lives um, and in all of our lives as we accept your grace and healing in the area of sexual brokenness. In your name we pray. Amen.